Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Today on Inside Politics, the final four. The stage is set. Four Republican presidential candidates have made the cut for the fourth GOP debate. Get ready for some fireworks between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, but will either take on Donald Trump, plus a desperate plea from Ukraine. Senators will hear directly from President Zelensky about the stakes on the battlefield if they do not approve more funding. With just days left to act and the world watching, will U.S. lawmakers give up on Ukraine? And hate on campus. The leaders of three of the country's most elite universities are on Capitol Hill right now facing questions about the terrifying rise of anti-Semitism. Did they allow Jew hate to flourish? And what, if anything, can be done to stop it now? I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start today with the 2024 race. Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy will be on the stage tomorrow night in Alabama. With less than six weeks until the first votes are cast, the front runner will be, once again, noticeably absent. Instead, Donald Trump will spend his night raising money for his super PAC after appearing at a televised uh, debate, or at least I should say a, a town hall tonight in Iowa. CNN's Elena Treen is covering all of this. Elena, what are you hearing from the Trump camp? Oh, well, look, I think when you look at Donald Trump, he skipped all previous debates, and it's a strategy that they continue to think is working and is effective. When I talk to them, uh, they argue that you know, Donald Trump, what they're trying to do is make it look like Donald Trump is in a different league, that these debates are beneath them. And that's why he's continuing to skip these. Uh, but that's also led to a lot of frustration among his opponents. Um, we did hear from Ron DeSantis yesterday in New Hampshire attacking Donald Trump over skipping these debates and for not showing up. Let's take a listen. If you're going to be a keyboard warrior, get out of your get out of your dungeon, get off the keyboard, stand on the debate stage and, and let's go. Now, Dana, I think there's two key things for why a lot of these candidates are so frustrated that Donald Trump isn't there. One is that, um, you know, they don't have an opportunity to attack him directly on the stage. He is the front runner and they want to be able to go head to head with him. And they're not giving the Trump campaign is not giving them an opportunity to do that. But they also um, want to court a lot of the pro Trump viewers over to their own campaigns. And many of these viewers are not watching the debates because Donald Trump isn't there. Atlanta, thank you so much for that reporting. And I want to continue to talk about this with our 
great panel. We have CNN's David Chaliand, Jonathan Carl of ABC News, former, formerly of CNN, uh, also the author of the new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, and CNN's Melanie Zanona. Hi, everybody. Hello. Anna. I can't believe I get to be on television. Oh, great to be we'll back. Talk about, yeah. We'll talk about our history, which is long uh, later on. Uh, but let's start with with this uh, news about what we expect tonight. Uh, David Chalian, I'm going to start with you. Excuse me, tomorrow night. W what are your thoughts on all of it, but particularly the fact that it is now just four and how that changes the dynamic? I would just note there's also one more element to what Elena was talking about. Yeah. Trump's not Trump's not participating in this data, which is that what those four candidates have done that Donald Trump has not done to qualify for the debate stage is sign a pledge that they will support the Republican nominee no matter what. Donald Trump has not done that uh, in his decision also to not participate in these debates. But the meaning of tomorrow night, I think clearly all the attention is going to be focused on Haley versus DeSantis. These are clearly uh, the candidates who are moving into this sort of, uh, especially as we approach Iowa, this final battle to become the clear alternative to Donald Trump. Now, the question becomes, Donald Trump is such a dominant figure in this race. Is this simply a battle for second place or is this a battle for somebody to emerge that actually can thwart Donald Trump from winning this nomination? Uh, we'll wait for the voters to weigh in on that. But that, that to me is what hangs over the debate tomorrow night. Well, and hey, look, uh, Donald Trump's got this massive lead nationally. He's got a big lead in Iowa and New Hampshire, but his lead in Iowa and New Hampshire is significantly lower than it is in national polls. He's below 50% in both places. So I think there's a real chance uh, that, that uh, he has an upset uh, defeat in, in either Iowa or New Hampshire or both places. Uh, so this is, I think, uh, an important moment. And Chris Christie barely made the stage, yeah. but he made the stage setting up a real battle in New Hampshire uh, between Christie and Nikki Haley. And it's interesting what you said about Donald Trump. I'm going to get to you in one second, Melanie, because that's a point that you have been making internally here consistently, which is he's not taking his foot off the gas in Iowa. It's not as if he's just sitting uh, at home eating bonbons or whatever it is. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, 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 ba he's back. Yeah, he's back in Iowa today to do this Fox Town Hall. He was just there over the weekend. Uh, his campaign has clearly kept kept him going back and back to Iowa. Yes, he has his eyes set on a general election contest, contest with Biden. But the Trump campaign, if they, if, if John is wrong, if indeed he does win Iowa, let's say, and New Hampshire, part of the Trump success, if that is the outcome, is going to be never lifting his foot off of the neck of Ron DeSantis. They have been adamant to continue that effort uh, despite his big national lead in the primary field. And Melanie, I want you to listen to the uh, ads that we're hearing from the DeSantis camp, from the Haley camp, going into this debate and where their focus is. I definitely voted for, for Trump in 2016 and 2020. But uh, we've got to move on. Governor DeSantis has proven himself in Florida. It's time for a new generation of conservative leadership. We have to leave behind the chaos and drama of the past. Not exactly subtle who she's talking about. Exactly. And, you know, they have limited time at this point to try to catch up to Trump. I mean, it's only six weeks now until the Iowa caucuses. And at this point, it is shaping up to be a battle to be the Trump alternative. And meanwhile, you have Chris Christie, who's still on the debate stage. And there are growing calls for him to drop out so that they can coalesce around a single anti-Trump candidate. Now, Chris Christie has argued that he's going to so show strength in New Hampshire and that he's going to hang in there. But the pressure is growing and the time is running out. Well, there's 
that's a, a big New York Times story about that very question about Chris Christie. I'll read a quote from Sarah Longwell, who's a GOP strategist who is very much anti-Trump. Time is a flat circle and everyone insists we relive beat, beat for beat the 2016 election. And she went on to say the main thing that Christie could do to make a difference this time is to drop out. Jonathan. Well, look, he's not going to drop out. Uh, and, and Christie has been practically living in New Hampshire. His town halls are, are attracting more people. He's generating more excitement. As you know, Dana, New Hampshire, uh, independent voters can vote in either primary. There's no uh, primary on the Democratic side. Uh, so Christie is poised to do very well in New Hampshire, and he knows that. Um, and he's not going to be answering any of these calls to drop out. And he's starting to post up against Nikki Haley in a way yes. in anticipation of this in a more aggressive way since it's old home week here at CNN. Mm -hmm. I'll note that Peter Hamby, our former uh -huh. colleague who's at Puck now, did an interview with Chris Christie this weekend and asked about that very ad, right? And, and Chris Christie had no patience for it. He dismissed it as somebody who's not willing to actually take on Trump directly, that you don't cite Trump's name in that line and that ad, and you're trying to play cutesy with not offending, but whereas he's making the argument that the only way to beat him is to actually go at him frontally and argue to voters why you are different. And he says Haley has shown an inability or an unwillingness yeah. to do that. And, yeah, and, and it's not impossible that he wins New Hampshire. I mean, it really isn't. I mean, I, I, you think, I think back to 2000 when I was with this network uh, running around with John McCain and the way he came through and had, you know, had that what was ultimately a huge victory in New Hampshire over, over George W. Bush. The fact that independents can vote, yeah, the fact huge. that Christie speaks to those independents in a way that perhaps uh, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis simply don't. Speaking of the never Trump uh, field or wing of, of the party, Liz Cheney is out with a new book. And I want you to listen to what she said, or I'm going to read to you what she said about the potential of her running a third party race. Several years ago, I would not have contemplated a third party run. She said, I happen to think democracy is at risk at home, obviously, as a result of Donald Trump's continued grip on the Republican Party. And I think democracy is at risk internationally as well. You covered her for a while on Capitol Hill. What do you think? Yeah, and that is a shift in tone from Liz Cheney. I remember talking to her back when she was in Congress, even as she was on her way out the door. And she said, this is my Republican Party. I am not going to be kicked out by these bullies. And now you see her saying that she would be willing to entertain the idea of a third party run. I mean, she just is trying to make the case that the stakes are so high that she would even be willing to do that. Now, whether that would work or not and who that would actually peel votes away from, I think, is an open question, right? She, there's no love. A lot, there's not a lot of love right now for Liz Cheney in the Republican Party, at least among the base. But clearly, there's still an appetite for someone, perhaps anyone, to try to take on Trump. And she's also not ruling out voting for Joe Biden. I mean, she's made it very clear. And Again, also been, remarkable to hear Liz Cheney. And, 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 say that. and she has been incredibly consistent about this. I interviewed her right after she was thrown out of leadership uh, of the Republican Party more than two years ago. And she said then that her single biggest goal is to ensure that Donald Trump never gets anywhere near the Oval Office again. David, do you think she's really seriously thinking about it or is she just keeping it? I think she's I think she's keeping the door open. I think she's selling a book, but I think that um, she has made it very clear. She will do the cold math and calculus. And yeah. if she determines that her presence in the race will do more help to Donald Trump than harm, she's not going to do it. It's a really good point. All right, everybody, such a great discussion. Don't go anywhere because coming up, time is running out for Ukraine. Will Congress approve new funding to help them beat back Russia? President Zelensky is making a personal appeal to Senate Republicans today. We're going to go live to Capitol Hill next.
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Time is running out for Congress to approve critical money for Ukraine's war against Putin's forces. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will make a direct appeal to U.S. lawmakers today. The White House warns a vote against more funding will hurt democracy and help dictators. As my colleague Stephen Collinson puts it this morning, Russian President Vladimir is Putin's grim bet that America and the West will tire of his brutal war before he does, is looking better by the day. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill with the latest. Manu, what are you hearing at this moment? Is it going to happen? Well, there's real fears in the Capitol that all these issues, Ukraine aid, Israel aid, and dealing with the southern border could get punted into the next year because of deep divisions on both sides of the aisle, as well as just a dispute over the process on how to take up all these issues, whether to do it all as one or do it separately. But the center of all this is the issue of immigration. Republicans have demanded changes, stricter policies at the southern border in order to agree to more aid for Ukraine and Israel. Even skeptics and on, who are skeptical of Ukraine and supporters of Ukraine on the Republican side, say immigration must be dealt with first before they agree to funding for Ukraine and Israel. The White House is warning that Ukraine funding is running dry, and if this is not done by the end of the year, Russia could have serious gains in Ukraine. Does that warning concern you at all in any way? Well, any warning from this administration goes on deaf ears. They're the ones that caused it. They're the ones that... that caused the war in Ukraine? No, they're the ones that caused border security... I want to make it crystal clear that I'm not going back to South Carolina and talk about helping Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel without answering the question, what about our own border? And Graham there has, has been central to these negotiations and someone who's actually been pushing for immigration changes for some time. But it's been decades for Congress to, it was, for Congress to struggle to deal with issues of immigration, unable to deal with for so long. And so the real fear in the Capitol among Democrats and Republicans alike is whether or not they will be able to come to any sort of agreement on this intractable issue. And if not, will all this fall by the wayside and will Ukraine fall to Russia as a result of the paralysis on the Hill?
Dana. Thank you so much for that great reporting, and thank you for clarifying Ralph Norman's comment about <laughs> who's to blame for uh, the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Thank you so much, Manu. And the panel is back here. Uh, it, it really is remarkable to hear someone like Lindsey Graham, who is probably the biggest supporter of the U.S. helping Ukraine in the entire Congress, saying, I'm not going to do it unless we get immigration, especially given someone like him has been, he's been involved in these conversations for, what, 15 years about immigration that mm -hmm. has largely gone nowhere. So he understands how difficult it is. Yeah, and Mitch McConnell, too, I would add to that equation. Yeah. For him, this is, this is a huge issue. He has been pushing for Ukraine, and yet he is aligned with his party in insisting that they also get stricter immigration and border security provisions. And I think there is an acknowledgement, even among these GOP defense hawks, that among the base, popularity for Ukraine is waning fast. And so they are trying to use this as a leverage point. They are trying to fight for this. But there's divisions even within the GOP about exactly how far to go. The speaker, Mike Johnson, wants to include H.R. 2, which is a very hardline strict uh, House GOP bill. But the Senate Republicans have said he'll take whatever we send over. So mm -hmm. even if they can get agreement in the Senate, which is still a big if, there's no guarantee it's going to pass the House. So the question is whether or not what is happening today. The Ukrainian president making a direct appeal is going to move any of these votes. Look, there is a growing movement within the Republican Party that is not just skeptical of Ukraine aid, but it outright opposed to it. I think, I think that uh, Donald Trump's a big part of, mm -hmm. of, of this. I think, as Tucker Carlson told me, uh, quoted in my book, uh, Trump is much more radical on this, on this issue that he lets on. And you, don't, you know where Tucker Carlson is uh, on, on Ukraine. Uh, this is no longer the party of Reagan. It's not the party of, of McCain. It's not the party of Bush or Romney. Uh, so while you do have people like McConnell and uh, Lindsey Graham who are still very much, uh, you know, in favor of and, and talking about the urgency to, to support aid, they are within a party where they have got to show that, okay. that, uh, that they get something. Using immigration, yes. frankly, as a way to sink it. Yeah. And this is what Senator John Cornyn, uh, Republican of Texas, said. There's a misunderstanding on the part of Senator Schumer and some of our Democratic friends. This is not a traditional negotiation where we expect to come up with a bipartisan compromise on the border. This is a price that has to be paid in order to get the supplemental. Could it be more clear yeah. than, than Cornyn is being there, who, by the way, may be seeking to, you know, be majority leader one day in the United States Senate and, and uh, playing his politics as well. But I think, so there's the immediacy of the immigration politics, but put that to the side for a moment. It gets to what John was saying about um, where the Republican Party is on this issue of Ukraine aid. I think we have two dramatically different worldviews about America's role in the world that's on display here. This is, this is real Trumpism, as you said, in terms of foreign policy here. Somebody who has said he wants to get out of NATO, isn't, doesn't appear all that interested in the European alliance with the U.S. here. Joe Biden believes his ability to hold NATO together and bring Europe together in this battle that he thinks is sort of an existential battle for democracy on the globe, he thinks it's one of its greatest accomplishments. So imagine in a Biden versus Trump world, that issue alone of the role America plays is just such a dramatically different vision for each of those. And the divide within the Republican Party is just massive on this because you do have the real hawks that are in that tradition, the Reagan tradition of, of you know, America being, having a you know, strong role in the world, 
But you have the cartoonish version in, in a Marjorie Taylor Greene that not only is opposed to Ukraine aid, but sees Zelensky as the villain in this fight with, with Vladimir Putin. But you know, th there, there is, there's a lot on that other side that yeah. is not just opposed to more money for Ukraine, but openly hostile to the idea of supporting Ukraine. Thank you all for letting us see the forest and not just the trees. That was really interesting. Learned a lot. Up next. The epidemic of anti-Semitism on college campuses. Top university presidents are testifying as we speak on Capitol Hill. We'll ask Larry Summers, former Harvard president, what's happening there and all around the country. On Capitol Hill, university presidents from three elite universities, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and MIT, are testifying on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism, which is on the rise, spiking really, on college campuses. Joining me now is Renee Marsh. Renee, what's happening so far in the hearing? Well, Dana, we're about two hours into this hearing, and the goal today for lawmakers is really to hold these camp campus leaders accountable uh, as these anti-Semitic uh, incidents explode on school campuses. Now, these three university presidents, as you mentioned, from Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania, at times it felt like they were facing a public shaming from, uh, especially from Republican chairwoman uh, uh, of the committee, Virginia Fox. She told them, and I'm quoting, anti-Semitism and hate are among the poisoned fruit of your institution's cultures. And here's more from Fox to all three of those university presidents just earlier today. Do you have the courage to truly confront and condemn the ideology driving anti-Semitism? Or will you offer weak, blame-shifting excuses and yet another responsibility-dodging task force? That's ultimately the most important question for you to confront in this hearing. Well, as you know, uh, Harvard, MIT, and UPenn, they've all been criticized for failing to quickly condemn these anti-Semitic rhetoric and protests happening on campuses. Uh, but all three university presidents in their opening statements today were direct in their condemnation of the Hamas attack and anti-Semitism. They did that today, and were, they uh, were very direct in that. Um, they laid out how they are confronting anti-Semitism, as well as Islamophobia, which they all said is also running rampant on campuses. And they made clear that they are struggling and continuing to struggle with this balance between robust debate and free speech and making sure that Jewish students certainly feel safe on campus. Dana? Renee, thank you so much. Sure. Harvard University has been at the center of the debate over how systemic antisemitism has become on college campuses. In the aftermath of the October 7th attack, there's been a striking increase, a spike in anti-Semitic speech and more on campuses, particularly at Harvard and at colleges really across the country. Former Harvard University President Larry Summers wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post entitled, The Cancer of Anti-Semitism is Spreading, Colleges Must Take the Right Stand. And Larry Summers, who is also the former Treasury Secretary, is joining me now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, so, sir, for years, when students have made complaints or shared concerns about uh, anti-Semitism that they have either witnessed or been victim of, they have been told there's nothing administrators can do because it's political speech, which is free speech. And rhetoric has been accepted for the, for the most part or ignored or both. Why? 
Look, there's been a problem on college campuses generally, and it's been a problem at Harvard uh, as well, that there's just been a double standard in the way university leaders have responded to racism, to other forms of prejudice, and the way they've responded to what is pretty clearly anti-Semitism, or at least has anti-Semitism as uh, its effect. And I don't know why that, why those mistakes um, have been made, but they have been serious and there's something that Israeli students have been aware of for quite some time. If there's any silver lining in the tragic events that have taken place recently, it's that it's brought anti-Semitism to the fore as a major issue. And I think it is being taken more seriously. But the problem is not to condemn anti-Semitism. The problem is to maintain a broadly tolerant and open uh, community. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to make sure that students don't enter classrooms with megaphones and disrupt uh, classes. That means you have to respond firmly, strongly, and clearly when people occupy buildings. That means you have to set the tone for the discourse by condemning sloganeering where the intent um, and the effect is very clear, like these calls for globalizing intifada. I've been glad that I've been critical on many dimensions of the leadership at uh, Harvard, but I've been glad that our president, Gay, Mm. very explicitly condemned the chant from the river to the sea. And I hope the leaders of more institutions will join her in uh, that condemnation. Well, I want you to listen to something that she said, uh, the current president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. She is uh, among those testifying on Capitol Hill. Listen to her opening statement. During these difficult days, I have felt the bonds of our community strain. In response, I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. The free exchange of ideas is the foundation upon which Harvard is built, and safety and well-being are the prerequisites for engagement in our community. Without both of these things, our teaching and research mission founder. So you said that she did condemn uh, the statement uh, that we've seen, not just a statement, the protest, the, the mantra from the river to the sea, which most Jews do consider blatantly anti-Semitic. But beyond that, do you think that she and others have taken the moment that you just talked about, October 7th, and have used it as a tool to to start overhauling this problem that has been going on for years in higher education? The ideals that uh, President Gay expresses are just uh, the right ones. But there's a lot of work uh, to do. You know, one survey, and who knows whether it's right, ranked Harvard dead last Mm. out of 240 institutions on uh, free speech. And so we have a lot of work to do on uh, many dimensions. 
I think a place it starts with the way is with the way you respond uh, to disruptions, mm-hmm. uh, the way you respond to events. I was disappointed when our graduate student union made a statement that I think can only be regarded as vile in its anti-Semitism, and there was no response uh, from uh, the Harvard administration. Can I just ask you I've been about disappointed by, by the lack of response in yeah. general to maintain order in the face of some of the protests. But look, things are moving. There are responses underway, and we'll have to wait and see how it uh, plays out. But the right standard is the same responses they give to racism. As somebody who was uh, in academia for a long time, why? Why is it so difficult for university administrators to respond forcefully to anti-Semitism? I think that the issues around uh, anti-Semitism are related to issues around political diversity. And in a variety of communities that regard themselves as highly uh, progressive, there is an affinity for positions vis-a-vis the Middle East that many of us find deeply problematic. And I think there, because that community is so large within universities, Mm. there has been a reluctance on the part of administrators uh, to, uh, to take it on. I saw that myself when years ago as president, I condemned the boycott, divest, Mm -hmm. sanction uh, Israel movement and saw how much controversy that statement uh, generated. But I think the issues around anti-Semitism and particularly before October 7th, the failure to confront it can't be separated from the broader issues of uh, political diversity, the broader issues of identity politics. And I think it's going to be very important to find a new synthesis um, as we work our way through this. That's what I tried to express in the editorial to which you referred. Yes, and you did uh, so well. And I'm very grateful that you came on to talk even more about it on this day when uh, your successor and others are testifying about this very, very big problem on universities, uh, campuses across the country. Thank you so much, former Harvard president, former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead, Liz Cheney says if Donald Trump wins in 2024, he'll try to make himself president for life. We're going to talk about that and much, much more. John Carl is back. Don't go anywhere. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
As Donald Trump heads into 2024, the clear GOP frontrunner, some Republicans and Democrats are like, are sounding the alarm about just how dangerous they think a second term could be. You can see him trying to uh, create the embryo of a fascistic, authoritarian, criminal party once he gets back into office. And Liz Cheney's got it absolutely right. If he gets back in, does any person think that really he would ever leave office again? If you believe that, you're just too innocent to be let out of the House by yourself. Jonathan Carl is back with me to discuss his fantastic new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, which I happen to have right here, which I read cover to cover, as they say. Uh, I want to, just on this note, talk about one of the many scoops that you have in this book. And your, the chapter is called Fix It Now. And it's about this notion, uh, not just of him staying if he wins again, but historically, uh, back in 2021, whether or not he thought he could actually be reinstated even after he lost because he refused to admit that he lost. And you notice that he put out one of the, his statements ranting against Saturday Night Live. And, and in it, he said 2024 or before. And this is from your book. You said, I began the conversation because you talked to him yeah. July of 2021 with no intention of asking Trump about the reinstatement fantasies I had seen circulating among some of his most extreme supporters. But as he droned on about the very strong information I'd soon uh, see coming, he sounded like someone who genuinely believed his 2020 defeat could be overturned. So I asked what he meant when he wrote in his statement, 2024 or before. We have some audio of that conversation you had. By the way, when you had a release recently, you said 2024 or before. What, what do you mean by that? You, you don't really think there's a way you would get reinstated before the next election. Do you? I'm not going to explain it to you, Jonathan, because you, uh, you wouldn't either understand it or write it. You wrote it, but you might not understand it. I mean, this this is a truly lunatic idea that, that was floating out there that somehow Biden could be ejected from the White House uh, long after he was sworn in, long after his administration had taken hold. And what you hear there, in and you can hear the way he's saying it, I mean, he believed that somehow the truth was going to come out about the Chinese manipulating our voting machines and the election being stolen and that he was going to be reinstated as president. And, and over the course of that chapter, which truly some of the most surprising things that, that, that I have learned about Trump, what was going on behind the scenes throughout the year of 2021 and even into last year, Dana, he was pressuring people to pursue this idea that Biden could be upended, thrown out of the White House, he could be put back into the White House, they could rerun the election, and, uh, and he would be president. And look, it's one thing to hear this in QAnon mm -hmm. websites. It's another thing to hear the former president of the United States yeah, talking about it, this. Yeah, it sure is. Now, I should say uh, that this is uh, old home weekday, whatever you want to call it, because I used to be your producer, you were at CNN, and we ran around Capitol Hill together. I learned so much from you, and I enjoyed working with you. There you, there you go. The Back guy, in the day, look the, at that. Yeah, the guy in the middle uh, was this U.S. <laughs> senator people may have heard of. Last name yeah. is Kennedy. Uh, yeah, that was back in the day. And one of the many stories that you and I covered together on Capitol Hill was 9-11. Yeah. We were at the Capitol together on 9-11. And 
it's etched in my mind, obviously in yours, because you write about it in this book, us coming back to the Capitol the evening as dusk was, was, uh, was falling and watching the leadership get together and in an impromptu song, God Bless America. John, you note in your book that you can see then freshman Congressman Mike Pence. There with the white hair. There with the white hair singing. And at the end of the book, you talk about that moment versus fast forward to January 6th and what a different world it was. And I think about that so much more, uh, so much, just as you do. That was uh, a response to foreign terrorism and January 6th was domestic terrorism. And, and, you know, at that moment, we really felt America was under attack. The Capitol had been entirely evacuated. The plane that ultimately went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, widely believed that it was coming to the dome of the Capitol. You and I were there. We both, I, I, by the way, I mean, I never had a greater experience working with a, uh, a reporting partner than you. We really, I think both of us had a reverence for the capital, for American democracy, for the privilege of being a reporter that got the opportunity to go to work every day in that building. And when we saw it come under attack and we saw Democrats and Republicans come together, that was a spontaneous, that was late in the evening on September 11th when they came back to a closed building and made a couple of speeches and then spontaneously sang that song. So as I watched the Capitol come under attack again, this time by domestic, Mm -hmm. as you said, terrorists, um, I mean, I took it personally. Yeah, me too. Um, th- th- this was this was a place that means so much more than simply the place where Congress meets. This is the symbol of everything yep. that American democracy is. All of America should should have taken yeah. that personally. So good to see you. Great to Thank be you here. Thank you so with much you. for coming on. This is the book. Tired of winning? Go get it. It's really good. And ahead, new reporting on one of Nikki Haley's strategies to set herself apart from the pack. It's getting a lot of interest from people with big, big bank accounts. Stay with us. As part of her effort to set herself apart from the crowd in the GOP presidential primary, Nikki Haley is bringing a tough topic for conservatives back to the fore, Social Security reform. Social Security is going bankrupt in 10 years. Medicare is going bankrupt in eight. The ones we change it for are those like my kids in their 20s coming into the system. We change retirement age to reflect life expectancy for them. We limit benefits on the wealthy. Instead of cost of living increases, we do increases based on inflation. CNN's Frederica Scouten is uh, here with me now. She wrote about this story today. It's so interesting because this is not a popular position among, particularly among the voters she needs, Republican primary voters are leaning uh, Republicans, and yet it is very popular among the money people. It is, absolutely. It was striking to me as I've been talking to donors in recent weeks, how many people raised this issue. Hmm. Um, She's been attracting sort of Wall Street types. The Koch Network gave her a big endorsement, and they specifically cited her courage to tackle entitlement reform. But as you note, it's really risky, right? I mean, we have something like 
nearly 60% of Republican and Republican-leaning voters saying that it's, it's essential to them that a Republican nominee leave these programs, Social Security and Medicare, as they are. So we'll see how this plays out here. And Yeah, and if she, I mean, you're alluding to this, if she continues to rise, there's no question Donald Trump will... Uh, go after her on this issue because it's so potent with voters. It is potent with voters, particularly older voters who participate in Republican primaries. And, you know, Donald Trump has a history of, of criticizing these entitlement reforms long ago. Um, but now he says that they will not be touched. And he's already gone after Ron DeSantis, another rival, early on in this campaign. Ron DeSantis, of course, isn't talking about entitlement reform in exactly the same way. But as a member of Congress, he voted for some non-binding resolutions to raise the retirement age. And, and Donald Trump and, and uh, his super PAC spent millions of dollars. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, Frederica, such good reporting. You always have amazing reporting. And you can check it out on CNN.com uh, about how much these donors who are flocking to Nikki Haley support her efforts here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a quick break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 